So I go into this course and I'm going to become a Buddha this week. I know it. I know I can. <laughs> and I sit like a maniac. I mean, I'm cross-legged with no cushions. I don't even know about Tapas. support. Yeah, I don't know about knee support. My knees are way above my hips. And I'm sitting there like I'm going to do it. I'm white knuckling it, Christine. And the shit that comes up while you do this. I mean, especially when you go all in like this. I mean, stories after stories. And I would go on walks and just so much shame and mm. so much anger and so much grief was coming out of me. Hello, hello, hello. It's Christine Marie Mason, your host for the Rose Woman podcast, where every episode I attempt to bring something that might invite more freedom or liberation or wonder or awe, sometimes science, sometimes spirituality, sometimes mind-body, but always aimed at more spaciousness, more choice, and more joy in our internal lives, in our lives with others, and then ultimately in the society. I do a lot of eco-spirituality work, you know, how what we experience in ourselves uh, is reflected in the world around us and talk a lot about tools. And today we're talking about the tool called shadow integration. Do you remember this old timey radio show, The Shadow? The tagline was, only the shadow knows what lurks in the hearts of men. It was a radio drama that first aired in the 1930s. And the character, the shadow, was the alter ego of a crime-fighting vigilante named Lamont Cranston. And he possessed the ability to cloud men's minds and become invisible. And I thought, wow, in, in the world of shadow work, you know, psychological shadow work, it's so appropriate because in spiritual development and the human potential movement, that's exactly what the shadow does. It's an invisible force or trap trauma that clouds our perception. It distorts reality and drives our behavior without our conscious awareness, without our consent, makes us do stuff that we don't really understand. So, you know, shining light into those places can really create uh, big transformations in our life. So Jung began developing this theory, his broader theories, including the concept of the shadow in the early 20th century. And his 1959 work, Archetypes and the Collective Unconscious, laid it out more explicitly. After Jung's death, his theories continued to be influential and have been expanded on ever since. The concepts of the shadow and shadow work have continued to evolve and find application in various fields, in mental health professionals and people who are psychology students and anybody who's really engaged in personal development work or spiritual practice. It's a pretty common term, but in the general population, only about one in five or 10 people know about it. And that means there's a tremendous opportunity to literally bring the light into this space. So today I'm going to introduce you to my friend, David P. Cook. David is a practitioner of shadow work, and he does it through an access point of deep meditation, including S.N. Goenka's Vipassana meditation, which we're going to talk about a little bit here, practice we've also discussed before, which is related to understanding oneself more deeply. Gwenka says the more one observes, the more one develops the understanding of reality, and the more one develops the understanding of reality, the more one is able to face the reality of life. And what does this observation mean, and how do we get at that observation without the filters of our past experience clouding our reality? But what I want you to know about David before we jump in is that when I see him in the real world, he is equanimous and he is patient and he is happy and he is super athletic. He's riding his bike or hiking with his cute dog or 
stand up paddling or just in general bringing the joy. He's you know, thoughtful, he gives small gifts, he does positive words. He's just a really loving and here kind of guy. So when he told me the story of how he got to be where he is, I was shocked because the, the early life that he had and the things that he endured and encountered, well, no, no child should have to encounter those. So I want to tell you ahead of time that we're going to hear his story his incredible journey of transformation. And the episode has some very intense moments. His story is intense. So let that be a trigger warning because we're going to talk about it all. And I do give us some pauses at the more intense moments, but that's what's up today. So I hope you enjoy this conversation recorded live in Mill Valley, California with David P. Cook. Before we really get too deep into the story, tell me some of your teachers who have been the most influential teachers for you. Well, it started with Goenka for sure. Um, I always give credit for my meditation journey and my foundation to everything to him. But after that practice began, there was a series of synchronicities that led me to quite a few other teachers. But my greatest healer who held me Uh, Her name is Brenda Scarborough, and she actually used to live in the Bay Area when I started working with her in 2015. She's the one who helped me integrate the shadow stuff. She's the one that showed me how to ask myself the right questions, and, and what an incredible intuitive healer. She was the one who really helped me heal that mother wound, and, um, she, she mothered me. She, uh, I, I, I don't even know how to put into words how much gratitude I have for her, but she also showed me those transformational methods that she used and then pointed me in the directions to her teachers, which were teachers like John Martini, who was, he was in the movie The Secret, incredible genius, who also, you know, is a big reason I'm here and learning his methods and techniques I use so much in my work. And then that led to Dr. Joe, but... Yeah, I'd say Goenka led me to Brenda. And then after that, the path of many teachers Mm. continued. Yeah, I love how you told me once when we were walking that you uh, did the Dr. Joe work. And then you also went and read his teacher. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ramtha, who's um, a channeled entity through this lady, Jay-Z Knight, up in Washington. Um, But I remember seeing what the bleep, and that was all around that school. And I love the teachings of Ramtha are just really reminding us of our own power and how to take it back and stop giving it away. Yeah. We always like to take a minute and do a little like, hey, where did I learn this stuff and how is it building in me? And then how are you transforming it? So I'm glad to hear you have these wonderful teachers and the curiosity to keep going. Like, what's the thread I want to pull out of this one? Yeah. And you trust your instincts. Definitely. Yeah. It's an intuitive thing. Mm. What feels like the, the right teacher for you now? We're sitting so close to the microphone, we could be like backup singers for one of those bands in the 50s where totally. they had just like one microphone on a stand. Totally. I'll do it. I'll go do do do. Do do do. Anyway, all right. I'm so happy to have my friend David here. Um, David is a very interesting cat. He's going to tell you a little bit about his story as we get going. Um, and then by the end, I think you might be intrigued as to how. Uh, one average person who's 
had so many experiences in their lives moves into the space of freedom and inner liberation that he has and you might want to reach out and find him so look for my notes um, on how to do that so hi welcome thank you so you want to tell people a little bit about your backstory sure okay to start um, I had a very challenging childhood I uh, lost both my parents as a kid my father passed when I was eight and there was a very difficult time, very confusing time in my life because there was so much around um, religion and being brought to church. And I remember being in, in his wake and just being so confused. And it really sent me down this path at that age. I think it all started right around there when he passed, just seeing him in that casket and the preacher man talking about hell and Mm. all these things and i was just like what had you gone to church before yeah yeah and it was like the southern baptist holy roland pentecostal what is that like for people who don't know it's intense i mean it's um hellfire brimstone speaking in tongues mm. a lot of judgment mm. god is a very angry man white guy with a beard mm. if you're bad you're gonna burn forever is that the one where you don't dance i don't recall that's if there was dancing in that church no but it was just like you know people randomly in the crowd start speaking in tongues and stuff and just like like in kind of a alien language totally and they're getting direct messages supposedly supposedly what kind of things were considered not good to do in that church you know i don't really recall i do remember like them having them uh people bring cds from ozzy osbourne and stuff to mm. turn in mm. You know, this was the mm. devil's music. and So careful with your speech. Very much so. And careful with how you treat people. Yeah. And sort of law-abiding. Yeah, but all the, all the in the, the experiences that I recall, the preachers were all also shady characters. Mm. You know, Ooh, like, don't we love that? Yeah. Don't we love hypocrisy? Totally. Yeah, so hard to hold that. Yeah. You know, I, just before we go on to the, that piece, like if you ever notice like being uh, upset by when someone's not telling the truth. Mm -hmm. There's like a piece that's very young in that, like what can I trust spoken from the words of adults? Yeah. So that hypocrisy has such a long shadow of, yeah. of creating doubt and distrust in people. Yeah. Um, okay, so you're you're in this environment where you're intermittently churched, yep. and your father passes, yep. and you go to a wake, and this is an open casket situation yeah, yeah. where you can like see the dead body. Totally. Ugh. Super bad. And back to that hypocrisy thing really quick, because I, I just want to name that moment. I believe that, that witnessing that hypocrisy is what sent me down the path to seeking truth. Mm, mm, so it was actually mm, the biggest mm. catalyst of my, my life. Mm. It, it set me up. It became my, my purpose. Mm. What is true? Exactly. I mean, what is true is such an immense question right now in the body politic and in the world at large. Like, just so much misrepresentation. But there's something, like, if you are in a, in attunement with your own perceptual capacity, like your senses, you know what's true. You can, like, res something resonates in you. But it's only after, if you've lost touch with your own attunement that you're not so sure anymore. I'm so confused is actually a response to um, being disconnected from your own body. So well said. Yeah. So 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 you're you're in this space and your father passes. Yeah, and then you know from that point on, uh, things were very shaky. We, mm. we, there was no solid ground. My mom had difficulty keeping it together. I had a younger brother as well who was mm. I was eight at the time. He was three, and over the course of the next couple of years, we started to see that 
things weren't as they appeared. It, it appeared like my parents were this middle-class family, hardworking, but it turns out they also had a secret, which is they were both drug addicts. Mm. They were functioning drug addicts. Anybody out there resonate with that? Yeah. Ever be around people who are alcoholic or drug addicts and, and, and the kind of chaos and instability that causes? Yeah, very much so. And, and you know, he had Crohn's disease. Mm. So apparently you can live your whole life with Crohn's disease, but if you're drinking whiskey and snorting cocaine every weekend, I think that's probably not going to help. Crohn's is the belly. Yeah. Digestion. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. So um, he was in and out of the hospital as a kid, but finally there came that one week and he went and never came home. Mm. And she, there was a lawsuit that she had for the hospital. So she had her addiction issues and then she had two boys and then she wins this lawsuit. So she had a bunch of cash and it was just like the perfect um, prescription for Absolute. Chaos. So you're saying she got this cash and she put it in a savings account for you? And Definitely and not. Would, like, Definitely not. <laughs> she would take care of you guys. Oh for, man, no, that, that, that would didn't have been happen. the dream. <laughs> no. I'm oh, sorry. I don't no. mean to make light of no, it. No, no, no. It's it's, a, it's it's there's a, there's a fine line between tragedy and humor, right? So yeah, it's, yeah. It's, it's it's true. Yeah. You hear about lottery winners and stuff like oh, that too, totally. who like spend it all, or yeah. and then have nothing two years later. It, I think there's actually a phenomenon around leveling of happiness. That no matter what happens to you, good or bad, that your happiness level sort of zeroes out. It returns to normal. Within two years, you get acclimated. Love that. Interesting. But, yeah. Mm. So we tried to stay with her for the next couple of years. And um, I became this little policeman at the house. Mm. You know, I, I just took on the role of I'm the man of the house now. And at nine, ten years old, I started policing my mom. Mm. You know, she was dating these shady guys, and um, there was violence, and um, just really, really dark days and scary times. Mm. And so I reached out to my grandmother, and I said, look, we got to come stay with you now. And that was on Captiva Island, a little oasis where my brother and I could go retreat and be surrounded by love. And we kind of had this dualistic experience where we went from this one extreme of inconsistent home alone a lot as little kids uh, to being surrounded by this incredible love and my grandma just singing to me every morning to wake me up and mm. just pouring so much love I can't even put it into words so it was like really interesting to have that duality was this your father's mother or your my mom's mom your mom's mom yeah mm. and so so she took us in and um, she had five kids and stories that I would later hear was she was a pretty tough parent with her five kids, like beatings and just beating them with belts and stuff. Mm. So I think with me and with my brother, she tried to make it right. Like she tried to make all of her discretions, all of her wrongs. Right. And so she went the opposite direction and just loved and loved and spoiled us and did everything she could to provide the love Mm. we needed. What happened to your mom? So my mom kind of, she disappeared for a while and we, you know, like my grandma's place was small. She, she ran a condominium association on the island, which included a really small two bedroom house. So there's no hiding anything there. And I could hear when she was on the phone with like a rehab center or something. And so I would hear her kind of managing my mom and trying to get her help in Texas or Colorado. And I was aware of what was going on. And throughout these years, I really started developing 
two things. Number one was this fantasy that one day I was going to rescue my mom. Mm -hmm. And this other was this anger towards this divine being, this God, the white guy with the beard, who, how could he let this happen? And every day I would spend time in nature on this island because there was nothing else to do. Um, and I would either, you know, I spent a lot of time connecting with source, with, with the divine. But what was coming out a lot was, you know, F you. Mm. you know, when it, it came to other people. So you'd have this holiness in nature. But then when it came to interacting with other people, the anger would come up. In, no, I mean towards the divine. Oh, towards the divine in general. Yeah, like if you're real, how could you let this happen? Right, right, because it was still this childlike yeah. conception. Right, of right. You took my dad, parental. my mom. Yeah, now my mom's choosing drugs over her kids. Is, right, is my interpretation. It really festered. The, mm. the anger became rage. You know, it was just growing, and and so now you're a teenager. So I, I turned thirteen, and the hormones kick in. And like hormones, also known as rage amplifiers. Totally. Or whatever's happening. It's totally. an intensity totally. amplifier. Totally. So there was something inside of me, spirit, that just kind of said, you can't stay here. You can't stay in this environment on Captiva Island with your grandma. So I always grew up loving the movies Cannonball Run and, and um, Smokey and the Bandit. Those were two of my favorites. You mean like? Breaker one nine, breaker yeah, one yeah, nine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like high speed chases uh -huh. and stuff. Mm -hmm. So I was like, mm -hmm. oh, this is this is. In my mind, conceptually, I already was addicted to that thrill, as a kid. I just imagined it. Mm -hmm. and I was like, this would be. And as I've I've learned so much about, the body and our energy centers and and how the second one is associated with shame, it's so natural that I would want to move up into the third to not feel the shame and the guilt and the, mm. The, mm. the misery of separation mm. and all the, the, the sadness. So the adrenaline became my drug. So and where I, does adrenaline live in the body? Which three, 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 the solar plexus, yeah. So you're going, you're going from the base, which yep. is security and yep. home, and then the second one, which is like all the feelings around... Judgment, all right and wrong. Yeah. Yeah. And what's the good part of two? Well, I think that's just when you're feeling safe. Safe. Yeah. And, and intimate and close. Yeah. Okay. So you bypass the parts that aren't... Oh, we're going to get to that when we talk about shadow work, I bet. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So you bypass that and you go straight to three. I get into three. Mm. And those adrenals just light up. And mm. so I decide to start borrowing my grandma's car Ooh. in the middle of the night. Uh -huh. I push it out from underneath the stilt house uh -huh. so she can't hear. And I practice driving up and down the, the road in Captiva Island. Uh -huh. And I get my confidence. And then shortly after, I'm like, you know, let's go. And I tell two friends in middle school on the mainland that I'm going to pick them up and we're going to go to New York City. I'm 13. Uh-huh. So, oh, you're, yeah. Uh-huh. So that, 13. that solid plan. And this is not in some bygone era. The driving license age is still 16. Correct. Oh, okay. Yeah. I'm 13. So we're going to drag race yeah. grandma's car to New York. That's right. 1991. Oh, my God. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I'm, I'm already afraid for you, but go ahead. You survived. You're I, as I look years, back, so I I'm so afraid ending. for this kid. Okay. <laughs> so she, like I said, she managed this condominium association. There was this big tube TV in the back seat, and I, I didn't know it was in there. So I get in the car to go pick up my friends on the mainland, and there's this TV back there. I leave the house with eighty dollars cash and a mobile gas card. That's all I have, and uh -huh. we're gonna go to North. Uh, 
New York. Lots of Wonder Bread uh, to get that far on 80 bucks. Okay. Yeah, thank yeah. God we have the gas card. Yeah. So I pick up my friend on Sanibel. Her name was Tia and a friend in Fort Myers named Devin. Devin's from New Jersey and he has a BB gun for protection. So that's good. Thank God we have that. So we drove all night and um, the next day out of boredom, this is great. We start waving the BB gun around. Like oh. while we're driving an I 95, we're in North Carolina. We think it'll be so fun to see the reactions of other people when they see this BB gun. We'll point it at them, we'll point it at each other, and we'll just, I mean, we're just little kids and we're getting such a kick out of this reaction. You're play acting at an totally. adventure movie. Totally. Mm. Next thing you know, a state trooper is behind us and the lights come on, and I'm like, okay, I pull over. And then out of nowhere, there was like 10 state trooper cars, all with guns drawn. And it was something out of the movies. They, they had blocked off the northbound lane of I-95 because, no. because their report where there was these, you know, there's this gun-toting car pointing at it. With uh, Florida plates. With Florida plates, yeah. yeah. So we were right at the North Carolina-Virginia border when we got caught. And I'll never forget the look on the state troopers' faces when they saw how small I was. I was a very small 13-year-old when I got out of that car. They were like, what? It's not what they expected. No. So we went to detention center. My two friends were... You're lucky they didn't shoot you. Well, yeah. I mean, we got out with our hands up. Yeah, we were pretty... You know, still. We were pretty... Okay, so you went to detention center. My first trip to the detention center. First trip. First of many. And um, my, my two friends got sent home on the Greyhound. And I had to stay because I had the car. So someone had to come get the car. Someone in my family. And... I was told that one of my uncles was coming and I had a uncle in North Carolina who was a master sergeant in the military who I was scared to death of. And all I could do was pray it wasn't him coming to get me because I was gonna I was gonna have some real consequences if that happened. Luckily for me it was my other two dope smoking uncles who came. Oh, I see. <laughs> There's a master sergeant when you need him, says my mother. As I, mother. as I look back, <clears throat> I really you know, that master sergeant would have been a good mm -hmm. move, but the you know these other two we drove back and they they kind of laughed they kind of celebrated it they thought it was hilarious and and i was like i'm sitting back there and as i look back at this 13 year old i'm like wow this is him starting to realize there's no consequences yeah and also they're sort of entraining you in their worldview at that point and they've got a little prodigy totally yeah totally interesting one of us boy yeah, oh, we did that too. We just didn't get yeah. caught. Well, you know? Maybe they were, maybe to look at it more favorably, they were trying to make you feel less shame or fear. Maybe. Or maybe. So? So on that drive home, I sold the car again. No. Yeah, I, this is where it just became, uh, this became who I was really quickly. Like now I became, my mind locked in. Once I get locked in on something, I'm all in. And I became locked in on running and driving. Driving gave me this sense of being in control. I was finally in control of my own experience and I was free. I could go and I had free choice to go whichever direction I wanted, however fast I wanted. That's how I feel about cars, by the way. Yeah. But never quite to that extent. But like, yeah, point me in a direction, open road. Yeah. Go. All I right. I still love it. How long did this phase last? So this was at 13 and it lasted until 17. So from 13 to 17, I went in and out of detention centers, um, high-speed chases, t 
tons and tons of high-speed chases, some where I got away, some where I did not. Mm. And I went in and out of these detention centers and in and, out, in and out of these programs where I was really smart. And there was never any consequences that made me feel like I needed to change my behavior. And, and they're also like sitting on top of this all skating over the stuff that need to be worked on. Totally. So we all know, but if you've, if you've been listening for any time, there's some episodes on punitive justice versus transformative justice. Mm. And that punitive justice never works. Right. The only stuff that works is getting below the, the trauma, the hurt that right. causes the acting out in the first place. Well it's said. So, so uh, they're not doing any of that. Right. They're just going to try to punish you out of it. Right. So, Okay. I went in and out of these programs, and then at 16, I was finally back at home, and I'd gotten my driver's license, and I was in this special school for, you know, kids who had high IQs, Mm. and um, the teachers changed classrooms to us. We all had our own computers, and it was really cool, and I was really starting to feel inspired, especially driving myself to school, and I was sitting in class one day. And I could see outside the window, one of those two uncles, those dope smoking uncles came to get me. And I had driven myself to school that day. I was 16 and and the first thing I could think of was, oh my God, something's happened to either my grandma or my brother who I lived with. And I, I did not want to go out that door and face whatever was coming. I, I could just feel the weight of that moment. And I did and I found out that my mom had been killed. And mm. And in that moment, the fantasy of one day rescuing her was gone. You know, I'd spent the last probably five years imagining like one day finding her and taking her into the forest and just keeping her away from drugs or alcohol or whatever she was into. And um, yeah, that was, I found out that that was not going to happen. And she had been killed by, um, by someone, you know, in that scene that she was in you know i i had to see her like that was that was the thing that was clear to me like because i i I had a longing for my mom since she had been gone and so i insisted that i get to see her and you know this is the most vivid moment of my life and a highly impactful moment but um i walked into the morgue and i saw her body and from 20 feet away she looked like a black woman because she had been strangled to death Mm. and and like i guess all the blood comes to the surface or so i thought i was in the wrong room at first i was like no this can't be and then as i got closer i could see that it was her i could see the the fear that was trapped in her expression Mm. and it was it was um incredibly difficult obviously but as I've done a lot of deeper work, it was actually one of the most powerful moments in my life, one of the most incredible teaching moments in my life. I can't imagine being a 16-year-old walking in and seeing that, you know, even after putting an overlay of understanding or spiritual teaching or life lesson, there's still like this shock of that moment so one thing that we like to do um, in our coherence practice in our community is to put a hand on the heart and a hand on the belly so that everyone else can catch up with the feeling. Hmm. So that's a really intense thing that David just said. And if that hit you in an intense way, just just take a moment and take a big breath and let that 
move through your body, like feel it, don't lock it up. Feel the sorrow of a young person seeing that, the shock. Feel the shock of the mom, and then just let it move, move through you. It's not yours to hold. It's not yours to store as a memory. Just let it move through you. And let's return now to our friend who is now faced with this new reality. Yeah, it was um, it was a lot. Obviously, it's one of the most, and, and I'm I'm very hesitant to share that with most people because of my awareness to how it can affect them. You know, it's I'm sensitive to how that's going to land, and I'm very sensitive to the being that I'm speaking to right. and what I share and how I share it. I'm so comfortable with you. Yeah, this thing about like the, the being witnessed in part, you can only be witnessed if you can trust that someone can hold it. Yeah. And and so we we do a little bit of warnings nice. uh, on the topics. That I think that's great. Show. Yeah. Anyway, so but it's an important piece because you know, we have a lot of resonance in some of the factors in our early childhood. Um, early loss of parents and violence and chaos in some ways. But it's sometimes necessary for the transformation story and also because it gives hope to people who have had the worst things happen to them, you know, no matter where you're coming from. Um, Vital to hear. I've always considered how I want to share this story. You know, this is not something that I've done before. Mm. So I knew that I would. I knew that my whole life was preparing me to do so. And what you just said hit the nail on the head. I think that I'm inspired, inspired to share it in a way that shows others that are dealing with um, loss, anger, grief, separation, shame, especially shame, mm. that there's something so golden hidden in it. Mm. And, and that's what I found for myself. And that is my, you know, the story that I have to share mm. is that it comes for a reason. You know, it, there's a purpose. If there, if it didn't have a reason, it wouldn't be here. Shame is an ad, it's an adaptive emotion. Mm. It's not an actual pure emotion like anger or joy. Mm. It's a it's something that is helps you fit into your experience into the story that you're living mm. and make sense of it. Mm. So, um, just a note to plug in the piece on shame as an adaptive emotion. Mm. Okay. So after that, um, it was incredibly hard just to find my center again and I, I went back to the only thing I knew how to alleviate the the pain and the suffering that I was feeling and that was my drug of choice which was stealing cars speed. and high-speed chases there we go mm-hmm. and so I got back into it I went all in and I was arrested one last time near the Sanibel Causeway in a high-speed chase and this time I was going to face some serious punishment so they decided I was at the detention center and then they came and told me that I was going to be transferred to the Lee County Jail and I was going to be tried as an adult. And I was like, oh shit, now it's real. And I, I mean, I spent the next 11 months inside the, the juvenile ward at the Lee County Jail awaiting trial and the, the other kids were murderers and rapists and it was incredibly scary place incredibly violent it was enough to shake you out of your sleepwalking really quick mm. like i was rehabilitated instantly you know like i knew in that moment being in that jail that i was never going to do anything like this again one problem was i was facing real consequences like serious 
you know, maybe 15, 20 years in prison or something. I'm 17, a little white, you know, little white boy. And from what I hear, that would have been traded for cigarettes. Mm. So that was, that was scary. It was super scary. Being there and what was laying ahead of me potentially was incredibly scary. But there was a lot of um, synchronicities and serendipities that happened there that showed me that I was being guided. And they're the most incredible uh, moments. One of them was out of boredom and also safety. I got myself transferred to the third floor, which was the suicide wing. So I pretended to be suicidal. And um, Wiley. Yeah, yeah, very much Another so. Another adaptation. For sure. I'm on this um, the suicide floor, and everybody has these cells that are on a cell block. You have your own individual cell, but these are like um, metal cages, just like you would see on the television. And one day this... Um, this transvestite named Scarlet walks up to my cell and passes me a note. And I open the note and it says, you're going to be a great leader one day. I mean, <laughs> I was like, what? <laughs> like, and as I was reading it, my every cell of me could feel the truth in these words. Mm. And I knew. And um, not long after that, I was downstairs in an isolation cell again, probably for safety or just peace of mind. And I just started writing a letter to the judge and to the people who I thought could help me. And as I was writing this letter, it wasn't me writing the letter. You know, I had spent enough time in, in isolation and solitude that I, as knowing what I know now, I had slipped into a meditative state. And this letter wrote itself within a couple of weeks I was whisked into the judge's chambers and told that I was gonna go to uh, the Last Chance Ranch, this 225 acre ranch with 25 boys, with horses and bulls and cows and goats and chickens. And I was gonna go there and I was gonna complete this program and my complete record would be erased and I would never get in trouble again. And I was like, that sounds like a really good situation. <laughs> so, so you know who started that ranch well the company was called ami kids and they still exist the ranch is no longer there um so i was like one of the last ones who attended it was so expensive for the state to run because it was only 25 kids and all this you know overhead mm. well they will tell you it costs sixty thousand dollars per inmate per year in california okay so can't be terms of return on investment for you spending 15 years in prison probably still not very much but right hard to look at that line item i guess yeah yeah so i go there i fly through the program i love it i was finally held accountable there was real men there who mm. showed real love and discipline mm. and accountability and showed me what it's like mm. to you know be held accountable and be responsible make your bed every day and get up every morning and exercise and had a got my diploma there. Uh, they gave me a scholarship to go to college. It was incredible, uh, truly special time in my life that mm. I look back on and appreciate deeply. And um, I went to school. I went to University of Central Florida for one semester. And since I hadn't been around girls in a while, 
mm-hmm. <laughs> between the one year in the county jail and the year and a half at the the boys ranch i mean i was I, I was taking all medical prerequisites anatomy and physiology and stuff and i was just like wait a second i think i'd like to research my own anatomy and physiology and I was acing the girls and failing miserably in class is my mm. point. I mean, it's mm. just all about girls. I mean, dude, the love wound is right there, you know? No mommy. Yeah. You know, no one to lean into. Like, I can imagine you are just craving totally. physical affection and attention and the approval of the feminine, all of that stuff. All that. And also, hormones still. We're still back in that. Yeah, I'm 19. He's yeah. cute, too, by the way, just in case. <laughs> I know this is radio-ish, but... I always thought I had a face for radio. Trouble. Trouble. I'm sure you were trouble. <laughs> so, so I went for one semester failing miserably on a scholarship. These people are paying for my Oof. education. I, and now I'm starting to feel like, wow, dude, this is obviously not where you're supposed to be. And on my winter break, I go to Naples, Florida to visit my family. My uncle owns a ballroom dance studio which he had tried to get me to go to for years. And I was like, oh, that sounds a little gay for me. It was my true reaction at the yeah. time. 90s. Yeah. It's like dancing? Definitely not. I walk in there, Christine, and they had their showcase that night, and my jaw hit the floor. I was like, I never imagined people could do this. Like, I just saw them waltzing and salsa and tango, and I was like, I was enamored. I was like blown away. And it's all I wanted to do. Like, And I knew that it was going to be the hardest thing I would ever do. Hmm. So um, I, I quit school. I told my uncle I'll take a job with him. He can train me to dance. My very first lesson was with a world champion named Wilson Barrera, who was like a mystic. And he mm. became my guy. Mm. My very first lesson walking in the studio, my uncle said, go to the back. And this guy, Wilson, who was talking about center and, and all of these things that were like, what? What are you talking? I thought we were going to learn to dance. And all of my lessons with this guy over the next couple of years were like that. Instead of learning to dance, I'd be laying on the floor and just teaching yoga and Pilates. And, and I was holding your core and totally, learning how to breathe. And, totally. And I was mm, like, what is your center? How feel. Yeah. Get in your body. It was really hard for me because of all the trauma. I was so out of my body. Mm. So they had to tap on me for the beat for a few months. And um, I mean, it was bad. And, but it's cool because what I learned in that process was that talent was really about desire. You know, I had this desire, this burning desire, and I didn't appear to be talented, but as I worked with really good teachers, um, I would have these little moments where things would click. And, you know, th- that was another great lesson that I learned that transformation actually happens in an instant. It just takes a lot of time to kind of set up that moment. And so I'd have these breakthroughs in dancing that were teaching me how how the mind worked. The, there's a couple of points I would like to pause on there. One is this idea of when you have a lot of trauma, it's hard to feel your body. And therefore, anything that you're trying to do with your body um, either becomes difficult, like you can't feel the beat, you, you don't know where your feet are going, totally. et cetera. 
or it becomes numb. You can do it, but you still can't feel it. Mm. Like you can mimic, but yeah. you can't feel. Yeah. And and that those are both common adaptations. So it's it's the desire yeah. and the preparation, and it's also to access a, a dancing mystic early yeah. on is yeah. is also kind of grace. Totally. You know that totally. he's there giving you the insider scoop on like hey it, it, when when david was discussing center he pointed to his diaphragm the two inches right above the navel sort of like how how are you holding yourself from there where are you moving from and uh, that's really deep teaching it not was. usually something you get in lesson one you know definitely not not at a typical ballroom dance right. studio so then what happened well, I, I worked with wilson for a few years he became my my first guru to be honest i mean mm -hmm. as i look back i don't real i didn't realize but that's why i was so drawn to him there was tons of coaches that came mm -hmm. in and out of there who were champions mm -hmm. he was my guy mm -hmm. uh, like a moth to a flame the etymology of guru in sanskrit is like bringer of light mm -hmm. it just means like someone who teaches yeah um and then it's gotten a little bit corrupted to be like someone you put on a pedestal and sure and he's like that God in the sky, right? But in this in this context, someone you willingly bow down to their competence. Absolutely, yeah. I knew he had Brings something that could help me um, have a transformation. And okay. I, and in the beginning, that transformation looked like I just wanted to be a good dancer. You know, that's what it looked like, and that's what it felt like to me. And then I did. I mean, I was so bad, Christine, when I started that at the weekly socials, the old ladies with their South Florida tans, you know, I would ask them to dance and they would cringe when they saw me coming. They'd be like, oh, no, not. And I was like a cute 21, 22 year old, you know, like, <laughs> but they would be like, oh, no, not him. Anyone but him. Um, so so it was it was hard. <laughs> but this guy, he had me doing things and he, I mean, he would have me. I would look in his eyes and I thought for sure he was on LSD or something every day. But he's just there, you know? Mm -hmm. He's one of these yeah. guys who's there. Always awake. A Maharaji type, mm -hmm. you know? Mm. At least he was for me at mm. the time. I got good, and then everything changed. I started showing off my skills and teaching, and, and that was a thing that really was impactful in my journey, is that every time I would have a breakthrough in my own journey, in my own physical body, in my dancing, I would immediately go and share that with my students. Yes. Immediately. If you, they say in yoga, if you know, you owe. Yeah. And they also say, don't teach what you haven't yet mastered. Like yeah. you can't teach postures that you haven't really yeah. accomplished yet. But yeah. okay. Yeah. So you you you're pulling it through, and and um, oh, this goes to this uh, this kabbalistic story of like what's the right way to be. It's like you're you're a pipe, and you're open at the top, receiving, and then you just let it flow right out through you out the bottom, yeah. open at the bottom to give. And that if you're compressed at the top, you can't receive and you get depleted. And yeah. if you're compressed at the bottom, you explode from greed. That makes you sense. Take it, take it, take Love it, explode. So the idea that you're getting a teaching and you're passing it through you and boom, you're handing it out to someone, that's gorgeous. Yeah. So now you're a great dancer. People, old ladies do want to dance with you. Scarlett's uh, prediction of you being a leader is beginning to come true. And... How long did you do that? How long did you dance? So I danced for, I mean, total 20 years. Um, I started competing. I, I did the international ballroom with the tail suit and stuff. And Ooh. like, it was so cool. And one of the, one of the happiest so, days so of my sick. life was, so fun. it was super fun. But one of, one of the happiest moments of my life was 
I went to the Grove Park Inn in Asheville, North Carolina for my first competition, which was a big competition called the Heritage Classic, which was way above the level that I was playing at at the time. But I was like, I want to go on that stage. And um, Tail Suit, my partner in this beautiful fuchsia dress, rhinestones and feathers everywhere, and she was gorgeous. I got the VHS tape you know, of our dancing. We did waltz, tango, foxtrot, Viennese waltz, and quick step. And at the end of it, I was so gassed just from the nerves. And But the, the prize was bringing that VHS home back to my grandma's place and showing her. And from her to see this, her, you know, her favorite grandson mm-hmm. in the orange jumpsuit a few years ago. Mm-hmm. And now here he is in a tail suit mm-hmm. and like looking like Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers, you know, and, and that was um, a beautiful moment to see her, you know, light up and appreciate that. A lot of people would have stopped there. Yeah. And like, this is a good life. Got the dancing, got the school, got relationships are restored, no longer back and forth out of jail, you know. But you didn't stop there. No, that was just the beginning. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so this was all a setup. Hope this doesn't go too long. <laughs> it, might, it might, you know. Meep, if it's too long for you. Yeah. You can fast forward to the place where the story's over. But I doubt it. We can. It's a pretty big adventure. These turning points i i mean I, i'm feeling like reflecting a little bit on what are those junctures and turning points that each of us has it, the real word for repentance is metanoia mm. or the changing of direction mm. and like what what is that moment when you just decide to change direction yeah what preceded it yeah and then what happened and i think everybody listening has had something like that in their lives so yeah. your moment of metanoia love that i think i'll be a ballroom dancer i i remember reflecting on pivoting so much as a dancer too and yeah. like how we could pivot and change direction ooh, so yeah ooh, it's, it's, so much go- you know yeah. what you could do a whole teaching just on totally pivot. totally learning how to pivot so i uh, light on your feet lift up yeah let your eyes go where you i mean like come on it's got all these like literal metaphors for yeah. how to how to change true i'm gonna stop myself go so another really big um turning point was the first time i went to a um personal development weekend my cousin conned me and told me it'll because i was such a like a atypical like i gotta be successful now this is my mindset i've got to be a success i've got to be a success Mm. i've got to do the i've got to flip what i've just gone through and now i've got to become this glorious success whether it's a champion or you know making money Mm. you know all of this is my programming now and i'm being driven to that so she deceived me a little bit and said david there's this thing happening this weekend this course i want you to come it'll help you with your sales and i was like okay cool i'll give it a try mm-hmm. and it was a lot of money for me at the time it was like a thousand dollars for the two days and i was 24. Uh, so i went and everything like my whole life changed that weekend because for the first time ever i was in a space where i felt like this was my path like throughout the dancing, the dancing was great and being in studios and competitions and stuff were, were beautiful, but I never felt at home there. And in this environment, this personal development space, this looking inward and looking at who you are space, I was like, this is my jam. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I really shined mm-hmm. in my vulnerability, in my authenticity. Mm. And I could see that being reflected back to me by everyone in the space as a gift. I'll always look back at that was a, a moment for me, and um, I got to s- learn about 
what Mike Smith, the teacher of this event, he's passed, but um, he called it the silver bullet, the thing that we're all trying to not be. And I discovered that for myself that weekend that, you know, I was driving my car trying to be anything but a loser, an insignificant loser. And that was the, the, the void, you know, that was the example that I'd seen in those two uncles that I just could not be. And, um, you know, it, it had some benefits and some drawbacks. And the drawbacks were I was so dedicated to winning that I would beat my grandma in ping pong, you know. So I got to look at that and I wrote this, um, this story that weekend that was my silver bullet, my worst case scenario, my nightmare. So if everything went wrong, according to your bullet, and you woke up that day and that, that story was a linear story of this went bad and this went bad and this went bad and then you died. And I wrote that story and it was intense and I read it out loud and it was very moving. And it was this cathartic release for me that kind of looking at the fear that drove you. Yeah, I was looking under the hood for the first time because mm. I was always reacting, mm -hmm. reacting to life and and just trying to feel better, trying to feel safe, trying to feel empowered, trying to feel autonomous. And so that was the motivating factor for all the behavior it was just I want to be in control of myself. Like magic happened from that point on. It was like I started to really be into this type of work. And I was still a dancing teacher, and I owned a dance studio now, and I started to notice that everything I was learning in the personal development space, I was then, again, just like I would do with the dance steps, I was practicing on my students. And I started to notice that all of my students, even since I was 19, since the very first day I ever took a student, they were all had this pattern, which is they were coming to dancing for wholeness, and they felt this lack and this, um, this separation. And I started to look back and connect the dots and go, wow, I'm attracting a certain type of person that other teachers are not attracting. You know, other teachers are attracting people that want to do the Foxtrot and stuff. And I'm attracting people that want to heal and just using the Foxtrot as an avenue to do so. That went on for a while. And some old programming continued. I could see um, my old shit coming up in relationships. Relationships were always like a real struggle for me. It's the last place, intimacy, where the trauma heals. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I had three three-year relationships that were like girlfriends and dance partners, and um, we were always together. So you really get to see your shit. You know, like the mirror is always there. Like we work together, we live together, we play together. Like, oh my God, if I was going to put myself in the fire, this was the way to do it. Yeah. And um, you feel like interestingly perfect adaptation to someone who had no one there. Yeah. Like, let's just double down. We'll have, you, we'll have someone there who's there all the time. Totally. Totally. Okay. Yeah. So I got to see some stuff until finally I woke up one day in a New York City hotel after going out partying in reaction to my girlfriend. We separated the night before, and I went out with some friends, and I came back completely hungover. And I remember her mentioning this meditation course she had done in India called Vipassana. And I'm, my eyes were bleeding. I was so hungover. And I'm laying there, and it was like one of the first-generation iPhones I pulled out, and I applied for this course in um, April of 2014. And... I was at Dance Legends in New York that weekend, 
and I applied for the June course and I was immediately accepted and I stumbled into this technique called Vipassana meditation and my first course was in June and I was I was 35 when I went into that course and everything changed then. And at this point, what had happened to your concept of God? You know, I had done a lot of personal soul searching and healing to a point where I felt very disconnected from God. I just I didn't really I didn't really care to talk about that kind of thing. I didn't get in, I wasn't into church or spirituality. I was more into like the law of attraction. Mm-hmm. You know, like just mm, loose metaphysics. Yeah, let's just think and feel this way and mm-hmm. you know, you create your reality. So, I feel like in in the progression of the story, you know, there's this question of like we've abandoned church and we've abandoned that God. We've gone through uh, the sort of let's see what we can do with our human like our, our stab in the dark on how to fix it let's just go fast and avoid it yeah then let's go in and like do some healing then let's go into the dance we'll get yep. a good mentor like we're moving along get some self-development some like what i would call a western psychological or psycho-emotional lens yeah and and these are all really beautiful adaptations and we still haven't returned to a sense of like the mystic yeah but my experience in the first vipassana mm-hmm. was like there's no like the space in between mm-hmm. and the disidentification with the mind mm-hmm. was so palpable mm-hmm. that I had to go back to those questions. But anyway, so you go to Vipassana so well yeah. and, and it pops you out. Yeah, I mean, I'm 35 now. And from the moment I was 13 and left home, I was operating from that solar plexus. I was like, go, go, go. My will was going to create this survival state for me. And I was operating from that on overdrive my adrenals were probably shot and so for the first time ever i'm going to go learn to meditate and that was my approach I was like okay this will help me it was there, that was still my thinking is okay this will help me be successful and achieve and dominate and win I, I find that to be the case right now you know there's a lot of people who are like meditate for biohacking sure like meditate to live longer or uh so that you can be calmer in moments of things that like you need a reason sure there's something called an intrinsic good yeah like something that's in and of itself is valuable yeah and meditation is that that's for sure and it doesn't really matter what your extrinsic drive is because either way you're going to land there and it's yeah. going it's <laughs> going to do it just a thing yeah it's good. yeah in and of itself okay so so i go and wow i mean i first of all because i'm driven to win and succeed i've got it in my mind i'm going to become a buddha this course this i of course i can do it still the nine-year-old who wants to judge and be better and have control and you're still the one who wants to be a star and and be lovable and be be worthy of love yeah be adored because there was also that program better yeah this this a perfectionism, this like I have to be great in order to be lovable. Sure. What if you're just normal and you're yeah. lovable? Yeah. What a shocking idea. I know, I know. It's not it's not um it's just normal. It's not our program though, yeah. yeah. Who's perfectly lovable the way they yeah. are. Well I always internalized, you know, it possibly being my fault with my mom being gone and yeah. so there was always that, you know, like and Michael Jordan was the, the icon of the day, yeah. if I could be like Mike. Yeah. And Mike was a yeah, champion. Did, so you, yeah. if you were a champion, then you'd be lovable. So John, I was always... My, my ex-husband used to say, children are wonderful observers, but very bad concluders. Yeah, and yeah, so that's so well said. <laughs> like, like, wrong, wrong conclusion. But. I love that, yeah. So, so I go into this course, and I'm going to become a Buddha this week. I know it. 
I know I can. <laughs> and I sit like a maniac. I mean, I'm cross-legged with no cushions. I don't even know about Topless. support. Yeah, I don't know about knee support. My knees are way above my hips. And I'm sitting there like, I'm going to do it. I'm white knuckling it, Christine. And the shit that comes up while you do this. I mean, especially when you go all in like this. I mean, stories after stories. And I would go on walk and just so much shame and mm. so much anger and so much grief was mm. coming out of me. Mm. And I did not know what to do with it. Mm. I'm out here in the middle of the forest. And I'm like, what am I supposed to do with this? I did not know. I didn't even know it was there. Mm. I wasn't aware. I thought I was aware. Yeah, it's shocking because you're like sitting alone by yourself in a room and everything's a projection of the mind. And here it is. Yeah. All this stuff you didn't look at and didn't want to feel. Fun times. Oh, so intense. Like with everything I'd gone through. That was, that was ironic. Yeah. It's not fun. It's not, yeah. Nothing fun about it. No. But go no. ahead. That's why it's free. Because <laughs> <laughs> if you free, paid, if you paid, you'd be like, "I want my money back." <laughs> Sitting here with my own yeah. suffering, yeah, unprocessed things. So, okay. So they teach you this technique of of mastering your mind. You get your mind really concentrated. You start opening the subconscious mind by observing the body. And by the time the sixth day had happened, I had gone so hard that it was, there was no more gate, there was no mm. door, the subconscious mm. was wide open. Mm. And I'll never forget this moment on the sixth night, I was laying there half asleep, I was in a, a trailer which was serving as a dorm and there was two bunk beds. So there's four guys in this what used to be a living room. So it was not even the most ideal place for me to be going through this. But I'm on the top bunk, and I'm laying there half asleep, half awake, enough to see that in my body, this fear energy started happening in my heart and it just started palpitating. And then my mind made a dream to match the sensation. And I watched this happen because I was half asleep, half awake. And I was like, oh shit. I thought it was always the other way around that the mind would create a story, then the body would respond, but it actually goes both ways. That's right. Wow, beautiful. Yeah. And it was like an intense fear and it just pulled me up to a 90 degree angle like in one breath i was like <gasps> and i was sitting vertically and i didn't sleep the rest of the night um, i was a mess the next day because i was scared of what's happening i was like oh my god this maybe this is not good for me right now um, and then i decided to leave on the seventh day because just for my own well-being i knew that i had stumbled into the right thing i knew this technique was beautiful i knew it was clean I knew that it was going to serve me and I knew that this was my path, but I had to go home today to regroup because I had no Did idea. Did they let you leave? I wanted to leave since day two. Remember, I'm a runner. I ran away at 13. So, right. so, my, so that old patterning was coming up of run, run, run. Yeah, they don't usually let you leave. They don't let you because, leave. Because, you know, the day, the first three or four days are miserable. Yeah. And if you leave in the middle of that, you're interrupting this pattern. Totally. And then right around this, like day five, six, seven, yeah. something beautiful happens. Totally. And it's it's so, and then that's the, the fruit of all the work you did, and then you integrate. Yeah. And so, but, so I'm, I usually they would stop you. Well, I just, I left like a runaway. No, I didn't ask for permission oh, this time. Oh, you didn't? Yeah, I just took my car. I had <gasps> talked to him previous days, yeah. but this time I just packed my stuff and left. Well, so how did you integrate then? Well, I, it was tough. As soon as my tires hit the driveway uh, in Georgia, rural Georgia, I felt immense 
remorse. Like I knew I screwed up. I knew I had lost to the programming. The programming of running had this won. This time. This time, yeah. But I was aware. I was like, oh, there you go. You lost this battle, but the war is still ongoing. Um, I went home. I didn't sleep for the next couple nights. I was a mess. It was. Uh, I, I immediately got into yoga for the first time. So that, that was a, a setup. But I also, within a few weeks, decided I wanted to apply to go back to another course. So I looked online and I said, well, I'm not going back to Georgia because I just ran away from there. I'll apply to a course in Colorado. Well, they won't know, right? I'm, I'm, I, this is my, my prayer. And so I apply to this course that's happening two months later in August of 2014 in Colorado. And I get a call. I had just left the golf course with some friends and I get a call from, his name is Mark. He was my teacher at the first Vipassana course. He had moved from Georgia to Colorado and he was in charge of receiving the applications. <laughs> my teacher from Georgia. And perfect. You, yeah, it was totally perfect. And, and I just told him, I said, look, Mark, my, I have felt nothing but remorse since that day and I want to go back and I just want to complete a course. And, and usually they make you wait a year and by God's grace, the grace of spirit or angels, uh, he accepted me. So. I got to go back, and this time, and, and this is this is really the the point that I've I've learned from Vipassana and from my journey. That first journey, the first seven days, I really dedicated and worked so hard to awaken my awareness and open my awareness. And from that point on, I decided equanimity was where it was at. Mm. And I went back to that second course, and I said, you know what? I'm just going to take it easy. I'm going to take it slow. My goal is to complete, and I'm going to work on just being okay with whatever is right here, right now. Mm, that's it. That's yeah. it. You know, that's what Goenka talks about a lot, or awareness and equanimity being two wings of the bird, and they need to be equal in size and strength. Mm. And I, I feel like with a lot of um, modalities on this planet right now, especially with psychedelics and stuff, and people are opening themselves up to these incredible awarenesses beyond this veil, but if they don't have equanimity established, it's very dangerous. A solid base, that's yeah. right. And in the body. Totally. I have to say that all of the work that you did um, throughout the dancing and everything else to come down into the body, that really prepares you. There are a lot of people who go into the medicine space who go up and out mind and spirit and they don't, they can't integrate. So I'm curious about, um, this sounds like shadow work totally. already. Is this Was this sort of the the root space of planting the seed for your shadow work? This was the beginning. So I think I've sat about 12 10-day courses since then. Mm -hmm. I sat a 30-day this year. And throughout this next decade of, of intense meditation, I'm going in and looking at my own shadows in every, in every possible way. But I start seeing and connecting the dots of what's going on here, of how we create our misery, how we create our suffering, and how we can access that subconscious mind to rewire it. And so what I discovered in myself and my own journey was that the shadow is the part of me that I'm trying to avoid and trying to not be, right? It's, mm. I'm trying to show my pride and hide my shame. I'm trying to show my light and hide my shade. And what I discovered was that it's actually integrating that shame and integrating that shadow and combining that with my light that creates wholeness and authenticity and freedom. 
And freedom became my thing. The freedom to to be myself as I am, the freedom to tell my story um, that I never wanted to tell anyone, not for myself or for, you know. You know, when, when I don't want to show my dark or whatever, the messy parts, it's always like I don't want to impose it on other people. Mm. You know, it's it's not so much like I know that I get this way or that way and the people I'm closest to, I'm happy yep. to like talk with them about it. How do you gate the authenticity and then what I would call the like the spewing. Yeah. How do you how do you hold that? Like anger is a good example. That's such a yeah, that's such know? a good question. And I think when we're ready to share something, it's integrated. You know, mm. if not, it's therapy. Mm. Right? Oh, interesting. Yeah, if not, oh, and we do this to friends, and we do it. You know, we call on our friends, and we ask them to hold space. And that's like a sort of an amateur therapy. Totally. Okay, let me just restate that. So I want to lock it in. So if you have something that's not yet processed mm-hmm. and you're working with it, it's mm-hmm. more of a therapeutic container. Yeah. It's not a sharing because right. you're, not, you're not through the digestion of it. Right. And so you might create a very targeted space to do yeah. that. I have something I'm working through. Would you be willing to sit with me through this? Versus I want to tell you what happened to me. I'd like to be witnessed, in yeah. it, which are two different. Yeah. And, and when it's integrated, it's coming from a space of wisdom. Got it. Right? So that, that it's loved. Oh, yeah. Oh, sweet. Yeah, it's love is, I think, I've heard. When the shadow is loved, it's transformed to wisdom. Yeah, it's integrated. So like the yin-yang symbol, the light and the shade is love together. Mm. It's the the synthesis of those dualities, those polarities, Mm. those dualistic parts coming together and seeing that, oh, love is the totality of it all. It's not one without the other. Mm. We're all in our Mm. animal nature, in our lower mind, seeking a one-sided outcome we're seeking the light without the shade and we're kind of programmed that way and as you as i did in my journey as i went into those those shadow spots and i started integrating them like for instance when i started looking at like that big moment of walking into the morgue with my mom okay anyone would agree that's a horrific moment and no 16 year old would ever want to sign up for that Okay, well, what is shadow integration? It is looking at, well, what's the hidden gift in that moment? And for me, it was a big one. Because in that moment, when I saw my mom, a part of my mind decided I was going to die with a smile on my face. And it triggered me to live a certain way. And as I look back, and this is in meditation, when you know, you're in your subconscious mind, you're in alpha, theta states where you're completely um, programmable. You're accessing your old programs, but you can also rewrite new ones. Mm. And then I started to work with that and say, okay, how is this my gift? How is this thing, this perceived slight from the divine? Well, you know, if the divine is what we know it is, the all-encompassing, all-knowing everything, then there can't be something wrong with this. Or maybe there's some wrong and some right. And how can I balance those two? So that felt completely liberating to me so that to me is the integrative process is taking those parts that we're trying to get rid of and actually seeing how they're actually perfect and that that's what gives me my unique flavor to offer so when someone's beginning to do this integration work where do you generally suggest they begin well the the number one thing that i always do is i start with uh, values understanding ourselves at the level of our values is 
is essential because most people don't know what their values are. Usually they'll give you some kind of um, social, moral mm. idealism. Mm. Like, oh, honesty, integrity, respect, cool. Like, those are all good things. But what do you really stand for? What does your life demonstrate is most important to you? Like, what do you spend your money on? What do you love to talk about? What inspires you? And so when I'm working with clients, we always start there. And we, we develop a list, a hierarchy of what those values are. One, two, three, four, five. And what's cool is like, eventually you could write a mission statement out of those values and that is like a great purpose statement. Hmm. Do you ever find people who have value shame? Like they think their, val their, their values are things they shouldn't value? No, no. <laughs> I've, never, I've never met two people with the same values. Really? Never. I really? think that there's no two what snowflakes. Are, what are some like, things that have surprised you? I can't even think of one because I, I go in so open that I wouldn't be surprised. That's beautiful. Yeah. You've entered that non-judgment space. Yeah. I, I, it's just like I'm totally open to I I ask the questions and my job is to hold a very clear container. Mm. Right? Like I think mm. that's a great facilitator. Mm. I would only work with someone who I feel could be clear and oh, not, not project their stuff, not imagine they, that they know. So easy to do, though, I mean, to imagine we know and project. but So for this last decade, after Vipassana and after doing all these sits, and, mm -hmm. and I know you do a lot with uh, Dr. Joe Dispenza, mm -hmm. you've done a lot of that kind of meditation also, but you're now seeing your own clients, and you've developed some modalities and, and therapies yeah. of your own. Yeah. So you want to talk a little bit about that? Absolutely. I, it's my favorite thing to talk about. Oh, yay. Because <laughs> that story was like, it was like I'm kind of feeling lulled into like, wow, what a story. What a story of transformation. Yeah. But you're basically doing the same thing you did when you were teaching dancing. You learn something and you pass it through. Exactly. So uh, I think uh, you know, sharing what we learn is a great way to make it ours. Mm. And and so working with clients now, I call it shadow integration work, shadow integration technique. And it's all about having a radical transformation in a very short amount of time. I typically am only with a client for about 24 hours. I say, give me one day. Give me one day of your life. And we spread that out over about a month, maybe five weeks. And we go through the process that I went through. Um, so I just share exactly what I did, and that is get present, get extremely present with where you are, with who you are, with what your shit is, with what your baggage is. Get honest. Take an honest inventory of who you resent the most and who you admire the most. That'll give you all you need right there because those are wonderful reflections of what you're hold, how you're holding yourself. So then we, we start going through this process of dissolving those emotional imbalances, those emotionally charged um, stored complexes that are in the body, in the subconscious mind. And I, I guide them through meditation and we access these moments of where those complexes were stored. And we, I started asking questions to bring balance to that moment. So when we resent someone, we're aware of the downside, but we're not aware of the upside. So, okay, well, what was the benefit in that moment? How did you actually grow relative back to your values, back to your mission, back to your purpose? So we use what we've already gotten from the values as leverage. And it the mind just pops. It's so incredible because I can feel it every time it happens. And my job's pretty much to just shut up and let it happen. 
Mm. I just ask the right questions at the right time mm. and, and sense and feel that. And, um, you know, I'll, I'll never forget for me when, when I saw this for myself, I thought, okay, this unwanted thing happened with my mom. Well, what if it didn't happen? What if my mom showed up as the fantasy that I always dreamed of? She was the perfect mom, and all she did was bake for me and sing to me and cook for me and love me. Who would I be now? And once I asked myself that honestly at a deeper level, I was like, oh, shit, I'd be an accountant. I'd be living in a white house with a white picket fence and a golden retriever, you know, like that whole. You think? Well, That's a story you've told yourself. It, it is, but I was I was really <laughs> in a deep state, and 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 I thought my point is I'd be quite normal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and 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 Whatever I. Whatever that is. Yeah, but I didn't I didn't sign up for that. I didn't come yeah. here for that. I wanted the adventure, and we all do. So so finding that for each individual mm. is is powerful, and and I've been doing this work now for about five years, and the results that I get to witness, I, I don't take credit for any of them. It's unbelievable. Radical, life-changing transformations every single time. It's just because that person, that individual is able to hold a container for themselves and really look and bring back into balance those imbalanced perceptions, those judgments. And that's what our baggage is. I'm certain now. There's nothing else. If you're only working with someone over a short period of time, do you maintain um, an ongoing community or connections with people after that? Or is it sort of a... Such a good question. I've, I've struggled with that because... And now I tell people up front that it's better to not and to understand that, you know, my job is to show up and serve in this way right here, right now. But I never wanted to become someone's crutch. I never wanted to become the coach they could call in six months when they're having a problem. You know, like that's not what I do. You know, my job is to just hold you, hold a container for you to heal yourself, that you know you did this. And if I can't impart those skills and teach you what we did in that amount of time, I should do something else. You know, this, this should be yours when we're done. And if it's not, then I wouldn't be doing it. And, it. and it usually is. There are a few cases where people maybe want to do a few more sessions or go around again. Like they didn't really get too honest or vulnerable. Mm -hmm. um, they were kind of sensing me out and feeling, was this safe? And then they, a few months later, like, oh, I want to go again. And there's this thing I didn't address, you know? Well, what do you think about layers? That like you might hit um, a, a layer now and then that reveals something that comes up around for later yeah like you can totally. only do so much at once totally yeah i mean usually there's only about three or four major charges that we can collapse like i, I heard it said a, a memory without an emotional charge is your wisdom so that's what we're trying to do is find those memories mm -hmm. that have charges and collapse them to where they become that person's wisdom so i always just go for the biggest that, that is such a good cheat right yeah. there yeah like what memories still have a charge that's it Oof. that's your baggage <laughs> well on that note um <laughs> we've got so many good pointers yeah in this conversation transforming things that have been difficult into something that is a blessing um, but the story is really moving in general and also i heard that you might be offering a course yeah i'm so excited because i feel like all of this was the wax on, wax off training to get ready for my actual work, my purpose, my mission. And, and I believe that bringing this, this work to large groups is, is going to be 
amazing. So the Freedom Course is what we're going to call it. And we're looking at offering it in Florida in the beginning of the year. And the goal is to have a group of people come in, learn the power of presence, learn what it means to meditate, to become familiar with yourself, learn how to identify those charges and learn how to neutralize them in real time. We'll probably do one for every person in that group. And then we'll do a meditative uh, practice that allows them to access their own subconscious to integrate that and turn it into their wisdom. How many days? It'll be two and a half days, so a three-day event, Friday night, Saturday, and Sunday. And hopefully everybody has a humongous breakthrough in that time. And then a day for yourself after, yeah. I, ideally, to integrate or something like that. Sure, okay, sure. sure. I mean, I'm throwing that in, by the way. <laughs> he didn't say that. Just saying, okay. Maybe you Don't get back week. on that plane. Take a whole week. Um, well, is there anything else that we miss that you want to add for now? No, I, oh I don't gosh, think so. So much in there. It's just really nice to chat with you and share. Thanks for giving me the opportunity to share my heart and wisdom and truth and all the gifts that have been given to me in this beautiful journey. People go through it, huh? Yeah. In this life and in these bodies. For sure. Stuff happens. I mean, it's an amazing thing when one person who's been at the tail end of violence, either in the extended family or in the culture. I mean, think how many people are war and climate refugees and yeah. uh, economic refugees, like just can't even make ends meet in their country of choice and like migrate to somewhere where they can. And so many people who are displaced and don't belong and, you know, it, and it just lodges in the system, in the individual or in the collective and people walking around with so much pain. Yeah. And this work like, offering a pointer to tools um, and ways of being that can alleviate this pervasive undercurrent of human suffering is like a very, you know, you do it and you did it for your whole family and then you pass it on and you do it for everyone you meet. And just by the way you're being in the world, being equanimous, being non-reactive is, uh, I mean, that's the way we do it, right? It's not going to be through um, contrails of... uh, of MDMA delivered through the sky, you know? It's like you actually have to get in and feel it and look at it and know that you're not going to die by looking at it and uh, finding the communities and the support to do it. I mean, that's probably a good summary of why we do the podcast at all. So you're you're right on point. I really adore you, and it's been an absolute pleasure to speak with you today. Me too. Thanks for having me. There are a lot of takeaways from this episode. I'm sure it'll stay with you, and I'd love to hear what you remember. But I want to draw a moment of attention to uh, what Mr. Rogers called the helpers. I think, you know, he said in any moment of crisis, in any moment of disaster, look around and you can focus on the people who are doing the damage, but you can also look and see how many people are there to help. And that's one of the things that stood out in this story for me, that at every turn when something horrible was happening, there was a... Uh, a kind judge or the last chance ranch or a teacher who showed up and to really draw attention in our own lives to these places where there is grace and that grace is delivered through the hands of another being, another human being or an animal or a circumstance that seems to have come out of nowhere. After the Boston Marathon bombing, I even wrote a song about that, about that line. Maybe I'll share that at the end. I'll I'll put it up as a trail out. Okay, so if you find there are places in your own life that are stuck, 
uh, it's very likely that the shadow aspects of the self are at work. Um, if you're behaving in ways that you don't understand or that are self-destructive or not in line with your true deep values, then maybe there's a chance to do something with shadow work. I hope you look up David P. Cook. Maybe there's something in his programs or offers that could be helpful. And trust that the right teachers appear at the right time. All right, you can find me on Instagram at the.rose.woman. You can find me at Rosebud Woman, my beautiful skincare company that makes intimate products, body care products, lifestyle products to celebrate your perfect embodiment through all ages and stages of life as a woman. And you can also find me at We Are Radiant Farms, which is our gummy nutraceutical supplements made out of gorgeous plant botanicals. Kana, which is also known as Bushman's Ecstasy. Kava, a very deep relaxing plant for anxiety, pain, and inflammation. Kapi, which is unpotentiated ayahuasca vine, uh, which doesn't have the psychotropic effects that it does when it's blended with chacruna, but is perfect for microdosing, for really supporting the nervous system, clarity of thought, good dreams. As you know, I believe deeply in the plants. You can find us at rosewoman.com and at radiantfarms.us sending you much love and here you go be a healer a song recorded in 2017 when you get scared by anger and darkness from people who've lost their way lonely ones in that alien nation see it only as hurt and separation if fire comes, we bring the water. If fighting comes, we bind the wounds. When storms tear down, we dig and shovel. Where there is pain, we just love double. We are makers, builders, creators, fixers and healers and Or steal.